Amen, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Go ahead and take a seat. Uh, my name is Roy, one of the pastors here at City Light Bennington. My family was in the corner there last week. They were here for a whole week, almost 14 days. So if you want to thank my bride for being an amazing person, she hosted my side of the family coming from California. And we played this really fun game, which was, what's your pet peeve? And so with that being said, I wanted to share a few, and I would like to just see by, if you're as so brave to raise up your hand, kind of where this church is in terms of how human we are. So if this one gets on your nerve, someone texting you while they're, someone texting while they are talking to you, okay? Okay, it smells like a whole lot, I don't care what you're saying, blah, blah, blah. Next one, when you hold up, when you hold open a door for someone and they don't say thanks, also known as ungrateful. Okay, we, all, we got a, a couple people. Someone FaceTiming or listening to music in a public place out loud. Okay, that one's almost as popular as the first. How about this one? You look tired, comments. All the mamas, females here, super passive aggressive, totally get it. When driving, someone passes you, then pulls in front of you and slows down. Yeah. I even heard that. <laughs> Bill, that's the first time I've seen you go two hands up, including worship. Oh, you're getting slain over there. So, I, uh, by the way, I know this list and revealing it to you makes my side of the family just seem like really nitpicky and probably easily agitated. But as my brother said, and he wanted to communicate this, other than those few things, we generally like people. So, praise God for that. Um, one last one I actually wanted to ask us is, how many of us are actually bothered by unexpected guests? The knock on the door, there's a doorbell ringing. All of a sudden, we're not American, huh? We just love having unexpected drop-ins? All right, I'll believe you guys. So, I'll confess, whenever we have an unexpected guest, someone who drops by, my initial reaction is, where are my pants? Uh, ladies, I know you probably say, where's my bra, where are the kids, who's around, who's at the door, if you have a ring, you're checking your ring, and you're trying, you go up to there, and they're a great guest, you're glad to have them, but you're a little agitated, although it's amazing that they're in your presence, you would have loved to have the luxury of knowing beforehand, and in today's text, we're going to see many ways in which that was not the case with the arrival of Jesus. There were plenty of things that were said beforehand so that we'd never had an, an expectation of him never arriving. So today I'm going to end up starting off our Advent series, which is an anticipation of God's first arrival on the scene, which we'll cover, and then his second arrival, which was discussed earlier with Kevin during worship. Today's text we're going to examine specifically, in which we just read, a prophecy from Isaiah that pertains to the coming Messiah, and it was given 700 years prior to his arrival. And God's desire for us is to walk away from this church service, one, with a greater anticipation for Christmas. Everyone, take one big breath with me, and one out. You're going into a busy season. Kids, parties, whatever it is, you may already be two weeks into it. May this just be a time where you sit and commune with God and set yourself on center, set yourself on worship of God going into the busy days, amen? And secondly, by God's grace, 
we will anticipate his future second arrival. So let's get into some context before we actually get into the actual text. About 150 years prior to um, this, 150 years before Isaiah was actually born, the nation of Israel got into a civil war and they ended up splitting up. So in the north, there were 10 tribes and that was Israel. And then below that was Judah and that was two tribes. So Isaiah in this context is being called by God and spoken to by God while there's a civil war going on. And Isaiah is called to minister specifically, you'll see up here, to the king of Judah. Israel, then because they're beefing with Judah, their cousins, they actually get the help of a pagan nation, Syria. And then those two come together and they attack Israel. I'm sorry, they attack Judah. And this is the attitude of God's people in Judah when they hear this. Chapter 7, verse 2, we didn't read this. The news had come to the royal court of Judah. Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear, like trees shaking in a storm. God allowed the Assyria invasion because of the disobedience of God's people. You may think, well, that was harsh, but there were so many warnings that God gave. Corrective warnings that said this would happen if you continued to disobey me. So they continued to disobey God. They worshiped pagan gods. And then God put his foot down. Second Kings 17, something we did not read prior. Again and again, the Lord has sent his prophets and seers to warn both Israel and Judah. Turn from all your evil ways. Obey my commands and decrees. The entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I gave you through my servants, the prophets. But Israel, the Israelites would not listen. God showed them mercy from generation to generation and eventually he chooses to put his foot down and chooses for his mercy to end. And he sees the best corrective measure for his children to end up stepping back into obedience is actually an invasion, a form of discipline. So the next few verses describe exactly what the things were that God's people were doing that ended up incurring God's judgment. 2 Kings 17 again. They rejected his decrees in the covenant he made with their ancestors and they despised all his warnings. They worshiped worthless idols. And so they became worthless themselves. They followed the example of the nations around them, disobeying the Lord's command not to imitate them. They rejected all the commands of the Lord and as, the, as their God and created two calves from metal. They set up an Asherah pole and worshiped Baal and all the forces of heaven. They even sacrificed their own sons and daughters in fire. They consulted fortune tellers. They practiced sorcery and sold themselves to evil, arousing the Lord's anger. It may not look exactly the same today, but boy, this sounds familiar. His people made a covenant partnership with God, Israel, to worship him. And that way that they would get God to be their ruler among all of the nations. But Israel continues to break God's heart. Church, we understand that God has a heart and he has feelings, right? And so he's seeing this cheating that's happening with Israel and it's starting to get him to the point 
where he's starting to harden towards them. To God, this was adultery. His people were cheating on him. And these are some of the things that I read, which we'll cover again. They worshiped other idols. They followed the example of other nations. They disobeyed and rejected God's word. They sacrificed their children. They consulted fortune tellers. And they practiced sorcery. These things still happen today. They just go under different headings. But we all can fall into idol worship. Tim Keller, an American pastor and author, says this. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Idols give us a sense of being in control. And we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do we fear most? What, if we lost it, would make life not worth living? Is it comfort, financial stability, the outcome of our kids, sports, education, family affirmation, the applause of people? There are thousands of ways that God has created good things, but we make them primary. And we make them idols we worship. How could we, even even us who are born again, how could we, and just humanity in general, and how could Israel then end up being so foolish? Well, it's because we share the same condition. And that is a sin condition. A condition that makes us worship other things more than the creator. We We worship things that are created instead of the creator. A condition that we are born with since the first time that we could actually remember. And it always draws us away from closeness, relationally, with God. The sin condition of us in Israel is so offensive to God that this is what he actually says about us. It's a heart issue. Jeremiah 17. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So as we continue to read, the Holy Spirit is pushing us towards seeing ourselves in Israel and in Judah and in their disobedience. We would have disobeyed just as they did. It's just ours looks more civil, more dignified nowadays. But when we read in here, we see that it's all a heart issue. God created us with eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes says. But we can't fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We've been made to worship something. What are we filling it with? So with the perspective that Israel and us share the same condition, God's going to end up handing down the results, the consequences, and that's the invasion. We're going to go into the text we actually read about, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Notice with me, church, God calls the invasion a time of darkness and despair. In other words, our sin condition results in darkness and despair. That is what it felt like before coming to Christ. And then when you get born again, you just get ushered into this new reality where it's similar. I remember watching The Matrix. I'm like, is that like the born again life? You end up kind of just snapping into what really matters in life and who really runs the show. And so from this point on on the message, I want us to see as we continue to work through the passage, 
I want us to see this prophecy from the original reader's perspective. You're hearing that your sin in this text is so flagrant that a coming invasion is being allowed by God. You're walking in darkness and despair. And you would think to yourself that if you were living in that time in Israel or Judah and you heard this, that it would just be nothing but hopelessness. There's no end date. What's going to go on here? Let's read on. Same verse. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair, here it is, will not go on forever. The invasion will not last forever. In other words, the consequences of our sin will not last forever. Can anyone give an amen to that? It's mind-blowing because we're not getting, they're not getting what they deserve. So the question ends up being, what is the cure? If the human heart is so wicked, so hardened towards God, if the issue is always disobeying God with Israel and us because they represent humanity, you have to ask yourself, what's going to end up being the cure? What will cause someone to be obedient and right in God's eyes? Let's read on. We're jumping ahead now to the end of the prophecy in which it says this, verse 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The cure for our heart wandering away from God and being disobedient towards him and his commandments is actually a child. The cure comes in the form of a child and his name is Jesus and he arrived 700 years after this prophecy and he arrived, his first coming was 2,000 years prior to this moment as I'm talking right now and he knew that sin would not allow us to be made right in God's eyes. It would continually draw us away from relational di- from relationship with God because that's exactly what sin does with a holy God. So in order to make humanity willing, willing, that's a willing worshipers of our creator, he needs to put himself within the human heart. And to do that, track with me, he comes from heaven and experiences everything that we have and even more. Check. He needs to live a sinless life as a perfect sacrifice. Check. His blood needs to be spilled as a sacrifice for humanity. Check. He needs to raise from the dead so the power of sin and Satan can no longer hold down humanity. Check. And anyone who turns from running their life and putting their trust in the master Jesus will end up getting God within them. Emmanuel. God with us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, check this out. I love some of the texts that say this. The Holy Spirit of Jesus is then given into your heart. The texts, multiple texts talk about how Jesus had to learn to be obedient. The Holy Spirit empowered him to maintain union with the Father in righteousness and he overcame sin. And that same spirit from God that lived within Jesus is now inside of anyone who's turned and repented. And if you're wondering, what happened in my life to where now I have new desires? It's all the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Amen and hallelujah. Jesus is the cure that was prophesied. And we'll spend the rest of the time looking at some other ways that Jesus actually is a promise keeper. 
There are so many things. And as we go through these things, I want your faith to be built up because there's going to be a second arrival coming in the near future. We don't know when it is, but we want to go through this and examine the text and see how God is a promise keeper. So we're going to go back to one. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Zebulon and Naphtali will be humbled. What does that mean? Well, those two were actually tribal allotments in northern Judah. And they're the region that actually gets invaded first. That's how they're humbled. But check it out, the rest of the promise there. That same region will be filled with glory. God is promising that those two places will be filled with glory. The two tribes in that area that were first invaded, that experienced the consequence of their sins, will then be filled with glory. 700 years later, again, that's fulfilled when Jesus steps onto the scene. You see, Capernaum was Jesus' home base for his earthly ministry. And it laid along the same exact region. So the glory would be filled. That was the presence of God through Jesus actually coming and his home base of ministry being right where the first invasion was, the consequence of our sins. So catch this with me, church. I'm bringing it up for a reason. The same area that you end up seeing here where the consequences of sin entered became the location of Jesus' entry. Mind-bottling. What movie did that come from? Can't remember it. Our God is a promise keeper. And that's not all. We're going to go through more promises in this prophecy that he ends up fulfilling. Verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Remember, this is a prophecy before the actual Assyrian invasion. And the people who walk in darkness is Israel. And it's promised that they will see a great light. And I heard some spirit-filled Christian over here when I was reading already catch on to, mm, amen. They already knew what the symbolic spiritual purpose of this was. It's fulfilled 700 years later in Jesus. John 8, what is the light? Jesus says himself, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, amen. Because you have the light that leads to life. Amen. The pathway to life that you and I were created for, in which we walk in, has to do with Jesus. The only way to the Father is through him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. God's keeping his promises. Let's continue to go because we got even more. Verse 3, let your faith be built up. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. This promise is being fulfilled in three ways yet still today. Number one, there are more and more Jews than ever before in a literal sense. A Pew Research Company, a Christian survey organization, projected that there are nearly 16 million Jews worldwide. Mind you, historically, from then until now, a lot has happened in which, exclusively in Nazi Germany, they tried to exterminate a significant amount of the population, and yet God's protective hand, because of his promise, is continuing not just to preserve them, but also, number two, more and more Jews are coming to know Jesus as Messiah. In 2017, Barna Research Group, a Christian survey organization, the two top ones, they gathered that one in five Jewish millennials in America believe 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Third, in a spiritual sense, the birth of the church at Pentecost enlarged God's people, spiritual Israel. God's keeping his promises. And we can count on every word we read in this, in, in this Bible. Next one, verse 3 and 4. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. And you will break the oppressor's rod. In a spiritual sense, Israel, in our sin condition, made us slaves to God, as we talked about. A slaves to sin, as we talked about earlier. We preferred sin. We chose ourselves. If, we, if there was an option between willing the good of another and willing our good... That would, that would cost us. We would primarily pick, let's indulge in whatever would serve us. It had felt like you had no choice but to sin. And that ends up saying in the Bible that the devil was our master. But then Jesus ends up coming along 700 years later, and he says this. He reads another prophecy in this book. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Amen? He also said this. We talked about burdens and yokes earlier. Matthew 11, verse 28. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you Remember we said that word, rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because Jesus is humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For Jesus' yoke is easy to bear. And the burden he gives is light. In a literal sense, this promise of liberty ends up being accomplished over 700 years from this is written, when this is written. Because they're going to get invaded by not just Assyria, but down the road they're going to get invaded by Babylon twice. And they're going to get invaded by the Persians who ended up creating the crucifixion as a tormenting tool. And the Romans then perfect it. And then the Romans end up ruling during that time uh, Israel when Jesus arrives. And after the first century then we end up seeing that the Jews are liberated. Our God is a promise keeper. He's the God of generations. And when you read that in the Psalms, this is exactly what he's talking about. Look with me lastly here. We're going to look into the last prophecy that is still yet to come. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. Check this out. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. There is a future date prophesied about in which Jesus will arrive again, his second coming, and he will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. He will be the ruler of a new and better government. And look what the text says. He says that that government will rest on his shoulders. In other words, all the final decisions of ruling will be made by him. And he is counselor. No, 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 not just that. 
He's a wonderful counselor. Who in here ever needs some advice in life? God Almighty is the one who counsels his people. And the superlative here, the adjective is, he's not just a counselor, he's wonderful. The writer, did, Isaiah didn't have to just write this. Yahweh's speaking to him and he's saying, put this in the Bible. Make sure 2,700 years later that people in Bennington would know and hear that I'm not just counselor, I'm wonderful counselor. And not just that, he's God. That's who our ruler will end up being. Oh, by the way, he's mighty God. For those of us who feel timid in season, weak in season, we have not just God, we have a mighty God. The actual atomic glue that these scientists are talking about that holds the earth together, that's Jesus. He's the one who created everything and sustains it. Not only that, our future ruler is Father. And check this out. Everlasting Father. He'll never leave us. We'll never have a single parent, uh, only a mom in the future. He'll never depart from us. He will remain our Father and never leave us. And then lastly, peace. God's going to rule in peace, but check this out. He's so about peace. He calls himself the Prince of Peace. He's royalty when it comes to peace. He's got a peace that you've never understood before until you've come to him. And if you've experienced that in your life, on this side of eternity, praise God, you're born again, right? But it's only but a small foretaste of what is to come. And that is going to be amazing in which I cannot understand. And so I'm sure that all of these things that we just talked about was very hopeful for the captive Judah and Israel back then. I hope that it's good news to us now looking forward. Two things I want to walk away for us to be encouraged by. Number one, I want to exhort you, live above the news cycle. Life never ends. Your life that you're going to live after your death will be significantly longer than the few years that you had here on the scale in comparison of eternity. You can endure. Child of God, you can endure ungodly elected officials and ungodly laws. Amen? There's a better government coming in the future. Number two, be confident of his next arrival. We just talked about all these promises that are fulfilled in this prophecy. Praise God. But it's over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in his first arrival. That's a mathematic impossibility for one person to fulfill all 300 of those that were given multiple times before he actually arrived. The probability would be of Jesus fulfilling this would be like dismantling your iPhone. If you have an Android, we'll have a conversation after that church discipline. <laughs> you're going to take out your phone. You're going to dismantle it. You would throw it into a bag. You would shake up the bag. You would take it out, and you would grab something that would even resemble a phone or something miraculous to which it would actually be your phone without you putting it together. You shook it, and it came back together. That's the probability that low probability is the same probability of one man actually fulfilling all 300 prophecies. So be confident as we look forward to the next arrival. In church, he will come again. Going back to this text, Israel had over 700 years of this prophecy needing to be fulfilled where there was despair and darkness. 300 years of physical bondage and captivity from multiple foreign countries. Regardless of the state, 
of the American church of which we're a part of, regardless of the state of our union, our country, God is in control. He is ruler. He will give us what we deserve, but by God's grace, he doesn't give us what we deserve when we come to him to surrender. And it's all because of this last verse, my favorite, verse 7. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Emphatic. Our creator, the one who is almighty and has all power, he's the one who says this. He's passionately committed to save more people and usher in his new kingdom. Those who haven't let Jesus run your life, it's an, there is no greater experience than being a part of a group of people who call Jesus Father. There is no greater experience than being a part of those who have experienced God as wonderful counselor. There's no greater experience that other than surrendering your life and your will to Jesus. And there's only so many times in our lives that we'll actually have the grace from God to feel led to surrender. So if it's one of these moments, you don't want to let it pass by. It's one of those moments you want to step into and thank God for in which you'll never be the same. That's for my friend who has not yet come to know Jesus. But for you and this church, as we head into Christmas, just a reminder this morning, God keeps his promises. There may be personal promises he's given to you and what you're waiting on that you know are from God. Endure well, child of God. There's a lesson in there and perseverance for you to be blessed by. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your first arrival. Thank you for your second arrival. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that history proves that it is true. And thank you, God, for speaking to us, even beyond the preaching of your word. It has to make sense to us. Your word has to jump off the page. You have to stir our hearts with affection that make us want to be obedient to you. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in this gathering. God, would you move us towards a greater view of who you are? And how worshiping you would be even more freeing than the slavery and bondage that we've been entertaining and sinning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.